suffering grows in silence. Pain grows, it replicates, it increases in size. And when we can shine the light on it, the light of being transparent, it has no place to continue to fester. I believe monsters live in the dark. Yes. And when you turn the light on, it's like, oh, that doesn't have as much power over me as I thought it did. Kay Buck, Executive Director of the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking, or CAST, C-A-S-T. She has over 16 years of experience in the violence against women field at the state, national, and international levels. As the executive, Kay leads the only organization in the entire country that is exclusively dedicated to working on the human rights issues of trafficking. I've done a number of episodes about this over the years, and I've learned three things that I hold to be true, and I want you to refine those and teach me some more about them. Sure. One is that trafficking is not what most people think. Most people think about it in terms of what you see in movies with people being put in containers and shipped around. That does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it's not always nearly as exotic as that. Number two, there's, I don't know what the ratio is, but it's typically, I've found more slave labor than sexual in nature, although that's more sensational and salacious, but it's more getting these people working for nothing and holding them kind of captive to that. Then third, it's happening all around us. We go to restaurants, we go to hotels, we go to events, and we're rubbing elbows with these people that you don't have to be interacting with prostitutes or drug dealers or whatever to be encountering these people in our lives, that they're in our lives, in our everyday world, particularly in major cities. Right, those, and also in rural areas, yeah, certainly. in um, the agricultural in, industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah in, right. Certainly, if you're in farming areas yeah. and agricultural mm-hmm. areas, mm-hmm. we're less likely to interact with them there, but they're certainly represented there. Am I understanding the general topography of this thing? That's right, exactly. I'm glad you said that, Dr. Phil, because you're right. I think... We should not sensationalize this issue. It's bad enough as it is. And we've been around for almost 24 years and almost every year, 50% of our cases are forced labor cases, 50% are sex trafficking cases. So as a community, it behooves us to really look at this holistically and not focus solely on sex trafficking like a lot of movies or TV shows do. Okay, so how is this happening? Because I'll promise you within five minutes, we're at Paramount Studios right now, which is in the middle of Hollywood. This is a very famous lot. We're just a few blocks off of Sunset here. We're at Melrose and Gower, right in the middle of Hollywood. I guarantee you we could go five minutes from here to... Hollywood and Vine to some of the areas where there are big restaurants, big hotels, and street corners, and find both forced labor and sex workers 
that are being trafficked by someone. Last year, 30% of our, over 30% of our cases were in the hospitality industry. And those were all forced labor cases. It's also domestic servitude happening in very affluent areas five minutes from here. Um, it's happening in restaurants and hotels and motels. So, yes, that's why we yet need to educate ourselves that this is so much more than sex trafficking or, or what you would see on television. Who are they and how did it happen? Sometimes there are children who are... Um, they're running away from home. They don't have a great home life. And recruiters or traffickers themselves um, can hone in on that and trick them into thinking that they love them or that they have a better opportunity for them. Foreign nationals, so people who are immigrants who are, again, tricked by foreign labor brokers in their hometown, in their country of origin, and they're tricked into thinking they have a great job here in the United States. Many times our clients don't even know that they are in Los Angeles. They just know that they're in the U.S. And, you know, sometimes they are, um, you know, going to the supermarket with the trafficker and their family or taking care of the trafficker's children in the case of domestic servitude. Sometimes they're working in a restaurant and they have to sleep and live and work all in the same place. So it's a lot of different scenarios, but the the number one common theme is that they are exploited commercially. So they are exploited for profit. And what that means is one human being is exploiting another uh, in order to make a profit. That's exactly what I was wanting you to break down for me. Now, mm -hmm. I'm wanting to go even more granular than that sure. because I want people to understand. Let's talk about domestic. I'm going to talk about foreign nationals in a minute. I'm not saying they're any less important. Let's say some teenager in Idaho runs away because there's chaos in the home, there's mm -hmm. violence in the home, or there are rules they don't want to do. And I tell these runaways all the time, old sayings get to be old sayings because they're profound. And that old saying that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, mm -hmm. they'll think, I can be free out there. And so they run away. and. I've talked to so many of them that have said, oh, I wish I could go back home. Mm -hmm. That curfew doesn't seem like such a big issue now. Right. But they do run away. Maybe they hitchhike to L.A. or New York or Chicago or wherever. Let's say L.A. since that's where we are. They get here and they're on the street. Maybe they have enough money for a night or two, but they're on the street. How do these people? traffickers spot them? How do they approach them? What do they say to them? Well, first of all, I should say, too, sometimes, you know, kids might be um, part of the queer community. And so life at home is really difficult, right? So it's not always grass is greener. Sometimes they have to leave for a good reason. But what traffickers do, they'll either go in themselves or sometimes they use uh, a recruiter and they prey on people's vulnerability. So whether that be that they're trying to escape a bad situation at home or trying to move forward into a place of acceptance somewhere else in a new town or city, traffickers know how to spot vulnerability. That is the number one thing we see in all of our cases, Dr. Phil. And, um, you know, what they say is, hey, I totally understand you. You know, I, let me help you. And it's either pretending to love them like a family member would 
and or they're saying, let me help you make some money. I know that that's what you need. So it takes on a lot of different scenarios in each case, but the common theme is preying upon someone's vulnerability. All right. And you say they spot them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that because if these recruiters or traffickers are hanging around some of these high traffic areas, you can tell, for example, watching whether somebody's walking with purpose from A to B or they have nowhere to they're go. Lost, they're lost. Yes. They're loitering. Mm. They're kind of walking without purpose. They're leaning against the building. They look hungry. They're dirty. They don't have anywhere to go versus somebody that's on a mission. They're trying mm-hmm. to get from their home to the library or to work or whatever. So they spot them and that's the first cue. So they go up and say, hey, what's up? You hungry? You need something? Can I help you? Mm-hmm. They offer. They offer help. It's a pretty low bar, right? Because mm-hmm. that person has nowhere to go, nothing to eat, no money, no yep. plan, no nothing. Almost anything is appealing. Right. That's exactly right. I remember working with a young woman um, not that long ago, and she was fleeing. A She was a young woman and married and was in a domestic violence situation. So she was trying to escape that. And, you know, she was on the streets of Santa Monica. She tried to go to the police several times. They did not listen to her and basically just said, go to this shelter. And there, the shelter also didn't recognize human trafficking. And so she never got the services that she really needed. It wasn't a proper intervention. And so she was, you know, wandering the streets of Santa Monica and this young man, you know, swooped in, pretended that he cared about her, pretended that he loved her eventually, and he trafficked her. And so this is a common scenario that traffickers use in order to control the victims. They make them almost dependent on them. Given that they had nothing and nowhere to go, forming dependency happens really quick and really easy. That's right. Okay. So when you say Trafficking is about one person exploiting another person for profit. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with somebody being an agent for someone else and taking a percentage or what if somebody said, hey, I can get you a job. That's how Hollywood works. There are agents and managers and all. But that's not what we're talking about. No, that is definitely not what we're talking about. Totally different situation. So there's there's something in the in the definition of trafficking called force, fraud or coercion. So force is pretty straightforward, right? And fraud is what we were talking about earlier, where they're being tricked into thinking that life will be better if they go with the trafficker. And coercion takes on a lot of different, uh, it can be done in a lot of ways. It might be threatening for foreign nationals, threatening to get them deported, or it might be like other types of threats that coerces them into going with the trafficker. So if you have force or fraud or coercion in these cases, that's what makes it human trafficking. The fraud can be love bombing them, gaslighting them, making promises. Tricking them, yeah. Just Mm -hmm. tricking them. Let's say they bring them home with them, put them to work, and don't provide for them at any reasonable level whatsoever. 
but they may also have 20 or 30 of these people in restaurants or hotels doing maid service, lawn service, all sorts of things. Yeah, or events, like you said earlier. Yeah. We, we get that a lot, Dr. Phil. And it really struck me when you said that because I remember talking to a young woman who was, you know, uh, she was trafficked into a home in a very ritzy area here in L.A., and this family had a lot of events and no one noticed that this woman was there all of the time and washing the dishes and cleaning up after the event until five in the morning, starting again the next morning at 7 a.m. So there, there are signs and you were correct in saying that probably most of us have have interfaced with a victim of trafficking and just simply didn't know it because we didn't know what to look for. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. My son's a musician. Mm. He just got back from like a 75-city tour where they did all amphitheaters, like fifteen or 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. And there's tons of staff there, and they're all wearing, this says staff on it. And you look at some of these kids, and you know They've all got a vacant stare. They look underfed. They're not well-groomed. They don't have things that kids their age would normally have. They're not whipping out smartphones. They don't know each other. You just know, you just know that those kids are in a forced situation. Right. So in there, I would look at how were they recruited? What kind of contract did they sign if they have a contract even? So those are the types of things you'd want to look for in that particular industry. In a lot of our cases, people will be uh, provided a contract. And then when they go to sign it, it's a completely different contract. But at that point, they feel like they all they already have to sign because they've made a verbal commitment. So there's a lot of things that we can look for as systems as well, right? It's not just a um, a person-to-person thing. It is also looking at the systems that, like a recruitment system, that is exploiting these people. So events, you're right. Like as soon as you set a tour, my thought was looking at who's setting up for those tours? Who's breaking all of it down? Like kind of like the construction industry, because we've taken, we've seen a lot of cases in construction as well, not just hospitality. So I think a lot of folks, because we aren't really covering this a lot enough in television and in the media about forced labor and how that can take place. What happens if, let's say you're at a restaurant and there's a busboy or girl over there that is, you can see them in the kitchen or they're bussing a table and your gut tells you something's off. This isn't right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Listen to that. Then you say something to that young person 
they've been really schooled on what to say and how to answer the question. What do you say to those people? Right. And they're most likely being watched and they know who's watching them, right? You might not know that, but they will know. And so they're probably not uh, making direct eye contact. They probably don't want to answer your questions. It is important not to intervene. I want your listeners or your viewers to understand that. You get them in a lot of trouble. You could make it worse for them. What you would say to people like that, let's say it is in a restaurant scenario, you would say, are you okay? Okay, I understand if you can't talk, but here's a hotline number. That is really important. If they can have something that is discreet, that they can maybe have in their pocket, and they call when it's safe to do so. We always say something at CAST, and that is that victims or survivors, they are the most knowledgeable about how to stay safe, not anybody else. So it's really up to them to make that call. What we can do as a society, as a community, is make sure that we've got 24-7 care so that when that person is ready to call, it might be 2 in the morning, but that someone who is trained and well-versed in uh, in getting people to safety is on the other side of that phone call. Mm-hmm. We've talked to our viewers about this, and I've had emails back from people that have done exactly that. They've written down a hotline number, a safe house number, a place That's right. in their city yep. where they can go and have just walk past the bus boy or the girl cleaning the table or whatever and just put it in their pocket or handed it to them Mm -hmm. and said, here's a number if you need it. Just kept walking, not drawing attention to it. And sure enough, it might be a few hours. It might be a month. But that person uses that phone number and calls, and sometimes until they get the opportunity or they get the courage. That's right. And, you know, maybe who's watching them goes out of town or goes to sleep or whatever. Goes out on an errand. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're listening to this or a friend of theirs is listening to this right now. They need to know when they do make the call, they're not going to be pressured to do something they don't want to do or they're not ready to do. I don't want anyone that's caught in this situation right now to think, oh man, when I make that call, I'm in it now. That's not true. What's going to happen is when they call that hotline number that's going to be on drphil.com, it's going to be on the podcast site. It's going to be on my Facebook page. It's going to be tweeted. It's going to be everywhere. When they make that call, the person on the other end is going to listen. They're going to answer questions. They're going to let them know what their options are. They're not going to get them in trouble. Exactly. They're trained counselors and advocates, right? So it's not an arm of law enforcement. A lot of our clients, a lot of survivors are afraid to call a hotline because they think that it's law enforcement or government. And they're, you know, for good reason, right? They have not had good experiences with law enforcement, which we can talk about in a little bit, how this issue of forced criminality is so huge in in the issue of human trafficking. So it's important that they know this is a nonprofit organization. It is trained counselors and advocates who are there to listen and help them devise a plan that's comfortable for them. 
right? So a lot of what we do is safety planning on that hotline. And if someone's not ready to leave right there and then, that's okay. No one's going to force them to do that because they're in charge of their own safety. And we will, we're kind of like a partner in helping them figure out a plan to escape. Dr. Phil here. Come February 27th, you're going to be able to pick up a book called We've Got Issues. And you know we do. This is a book that says it's going to teach you how to stand strong for America's soul and sanity. And in this book, I set forth 10 principles for saving this society from going off the deep end. 10 principles for protecting your family. 10 principles for giving you what you need to flourish and have the life that you want for yourself and for your children and for your grandchildren. We've taken some wrong turns. We've been letting the loudest voices dictate some of the thinking that has taken us way off course. Well, I'm speaking up and bringing us back to the center of the road. I hope you'll pick this book up and I hope you'll read it with a real open mind because I'm pushing back against a lot of what you've been hearing. Somebody had to do it. Might as well be me. February 27th, we've got issues. Jennifer Snyder, head deputy of the Norwalk branch of the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, and George Mueller, deputy commissioner for the California Department of Insurance Enforcement Branch. We're not far from what is referred to as the Rehab Riviera. There's a part of L.A. where there are a lot of rehab facilities here for drug and alcohol. Some of them are five-star, A-plus quality organizations. Some of them are not. When people go into rehab, there are phases. There's rehab, the initial treatment. Then when they get through with rehab, there are other kind of halfway steps. There are halfway houses. There are sober living houses. Like most industries, these are given to abuse when you're dealing with a vulnerable population. And there has been a lot of fraud going on in this industry as well. We work very closely with all our district attorney partners. And when you're talking about these sober living homes, I mean, Orange County is kind of kind of the uh, the benchmark that they've set across the country is one of the highest areas that people have joked about that there are more sober living homes in Orange County than there are Starbucks, which is kind of hard to believe. And what we really started to find is the brokering of patients. The fraud that is going on with these sober living homes right now is disgusting, Dr. Phil. You know, these, these places are buying insurance policies for people across the country. They are flying them out here to promise them, you know, this great rehab and to bring their life back. And they get them into these rehabs and it starts off well. And next thing you know is just as the insurance policy is beginning to run out and they don't have the coverage anymore, what they do is they'll go ahead and supply them narcotics again or whatever their addiction is to. And they'll then kick them out on the street and then try to restart that whole insurance policy again and bring them back into the fold. Or they'll send them to another facility, which, believe it or not, is probably one of their facilities as well. A lot of times they have these shell companies where they have multiple different types of names. And the minute law enforcement starts to pick up on them, guess what they do? They change their name. They move to a different location. And they're in our, our neighborhoods as well. You will hear neighbors complain all the time. Well, there is a sober living house right next door to me with all these people. 
And a lot of the communities or these local cities don't have any ordinance to prevent that. But right now, sober living homes is one of the biggest scams going on across this country. Um, and Florida is probably one of the biggest. And then you bring it out to California. You and I have talked in the past, insurance fraud either starts in Florida or it starts in California. They learn it from the other side of the coast and then it goes there as well. Um, but it is one of the biggest industries out there. So let's assume, Dr. Phil, that you have an addicted child. Okay. And you are at wit's end about your addicted child. And you look on, you see a beautiful ad on late night TV about a place you're going to put you where they're going to handle everything. And when you go there and you're at your lowest ebb and your child, adult children very often are at their lowest ebb. They come in and they say, they assess you and they say, look, this will cost you $2,000 out of pocket, but we will get the rest of it from insurance. And so they will take your kids information. They will notify the insurer that the kid moved, which is now a qualifying event. They will list an address that they control as where they now reside. And they will then bilk that policy and bill as much as they can for insurance purposes for treatments, some of which happen, a lot of which don't. And then when they run out on that policy, they'll buy a new policy from a different company and they will exhaust that policy's benefits. And it goes on and on. Sometimes, as George said, they will bring some drugs into the facility so they get your kid re-addicted. So now your kid feels powerless because they did the very thing that everybody said they shouldn't do. This goes on over and over and over because there is a pot of money in insurance policies for addiction treatment. It is a burgeoning industry that has only partial regulation. For instance, Sober living houses are not regulated by the state of California. Rehabilitation facilities are. And while that might seem to be somewhat in the weeds, it is those kinds of distinctions that the fraudsters exploit to their own benefit. And you will see people for whom more than two or three million dollars has been billed for rehabilitation services, and that person is still under rehab. They are still a client of the rehab facility. I don't want to damn the entire industry because there's a lot of really good companies out there that really do put the client's interest first. But where you have to be watching this is when your loved one's personal information gets taken, it makes them vulnerable and they can get exploited. All of the mail pertaining to those policies that got purchased gets sent to the address that the rehab center has provided. We found in several cases it was a post office box. Remarkably, 400 people permanently relocated to a post office box. But nobody wow. would find that out until you finally figured out that your kid had been in the rehab for 120 days and is still testing dirty. They also do things like they buy their own testing facilities. So now your loved one is testing five days a week, even though medically that's completely unnecessary. Why are they doing that? So that they can bill the insurance company for five tests. And when they do that, instead of billing for one packet of tests, they bill each one individually. So they do what we call unbundling. So they bill for $2,500 for a urinalysis on a daily basis, as opposed to one $200 urinalysis. It's crazy creative the way that this billing goes on. And what's most despicable about it is that the people that are finally going to seek treatment 
have hit rock bottom and they are incredibly vulnerable. That's what makes my blood boil, that these are families and people who are at their lowest ebb and these money-making people are more concerned about the dollars they can extract than the well-being of the people that they are recruiting. Are they trafficking these patients between different facilities? Sure, they'll ping-pong them. They'll they'll basically send them. They'll offer the patient 500 bucks to go to a different facility. And then that other facility will issue billing. And they all know that the billing goes through a computerized system. And they figured out what the algorithms are so they can escape detection. It's a fascinating and intricate business. But what it really boils down to is somebody's lying to get something that they're not entitled to. The bad guys just believe that we won't have the patience or the perseverance to keep at it until we figure out how they did it. And they're able to get away with millions and millions and millions of dollars in fraudulent billing before they finally get caught. And then when they get caught, they figure, what's the worst thing that happens? If I have lived a high life and spent all that money, I don't even have to pay the money back because it's just fraud. And that's the fallacy that George and I have been fighting for a number of years. It's not just fraud. It's a whole lot worse than that. It's really about destroying people's trust. Because I work with this population a lot, and we we try to do everything we can to vet these facilities, which is no easy task, let me tell you, because the state licenses these facilities based on what information they have at the time, and it's ever-changing and evolving. So they're chasing the information at all times. But when you do this, you're dealing with a very vulnerable population and people wind up losing their lives. Are there criminal consequences for these people if they play this rotation game and somebody winds up overdosing and dying? Are these people criminally liable for manslaughter or or whatever if somebody dies in this shell game they're playing? It's a difficult question. Uh, here's what we have found. It is almost impossible to prove cause of death for an addict to be the result of somebody else's, of another human being's intentional act. So when somebody is a drug addict, their cause of death is overdose. Unless we can provide evidence or we find evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to prove that somebody else caused that death by giving them a huge bolus of whatever their drug of choice is or by getting them, uh, putting them in a situation where they were particularly endangered. That becomes very difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. That's one of our greatest frustrations. At one of these clinics, I know of eight people who overdosed, most of whom had broken away from the facilitators, the, the lead facilitator. They were saying, I want out of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow the whistle. And those investigations are ongoing because we have such difficulty proving that their death was caused by the intentional act of another human being that was likely to cause death. It is a real sticky wicket, and it is a real frustration in pursuing these cases. And so we try to close down those facilities that we can where this has been happening even though that's not much sense of justice for those families who may have lost a loved one. It's difficult to prove the cause of death was another human being's malfeasance. What do we say to families that are looking for legitimate 
care because sober living, in my professional opinion, is a legitimate step in the process of getting yourself back into a fully functioning role in society. I think rehab is a legitimate uh, treatment modality. Going to sober living where you're with like-minded people that are supporting your sobriety and helping you with a job and helping you do the things you need to start stair-stepping yourself back to independent sober living on your own. That is a supportive environment. Done properly, it is a legitimate therapeutic modality. What do we say to people? How do they guard against getting caught up in this shell game of fraudulent operators? Because I know there are some good operators out there. I think you have to stay proactive. You have to beware if the operators are isolating your loved one. You have to go out and actually walk through the facility. Um, part of one of our prosecutions involved an investigator from one of the insurance companies who posed as the mother of an addict, and she actually went in the facility. And Dr. Phil, given your familiarity with this, I'm sure you will be as outraged as she was when she asked them where their detox room was. They showed her a living room with a couple of chairs and said, we just let them detox here. Oh. And she said, well, what do you do about medical care? She said, well, only when it's needed. Okay. For some who are uninformed, that might seem okay, but that's not what detox is supposed to be. So I would say stay proactive, stay vigilant, beware if somebody is isolating your loved one from you, and go in and walk through the place yourself. Ask questions. Find out from other people. Don't believe the ads that are on TV. It may look real pretty, but find out if they're really doing the hard work. I suspect that all of us know people who have gotten through their addiction. It is a tough road to hoe. So I would encourage people who are in that environment to look very closely at the details. Find out if they're going to have the insurance if they're going to share, for instance, the explanation of benefits, you know, sometimes we get those explanation of benefit forms from the insurance company. And I don't know about you, but I know the only line that I read regularly is it's your responsibility to pay. And right. you don't necessarily look down the itemized items that are being billed on your behalf. I think people have to be a little bit more proactive as consumers and make sure that their loved one, or if it's them, that they're getting the services that they're supposed to get. And if you see isolation of people, if you see um, if you see something that doesn't strike you as being accurate, check other check their peer businesses because I've found that the rehabilitation facilities that are legitimate really work hard to protect the legitimate providers. And they're getting brought down by the cheaters. So I would say be proactive, don't relinquish control of billing and personal information, and be vigilant. There are some watchdog groups out there. Wendy McIntyre, who is founder of an organization, jaredslaw.org. I don't know if you all have encountered Wendy, but she founded this organization in 2005 after the loss of her son, Jared, at a rogue sober living home. And she started this 501c. It's a nonprofit organization. And they really work as a protector looking into these bogus, illegal 
sober living facilities and really audits these things and does what you're saying, sends people inside and looks at them. And so you've just got to get on the internet, do your homework, make visits, call, find out what's going on. And if they're trafficking your family member around, that's a real big red flag. And they're unfortunately are operating outside those regulations. And I think Orange County, it's like when you look at the advertisement and you see Orange County, you see the beach, you know, you see the beautiful sunsets. People see that. Well, if I'm going to go to rehab, I want to go to a place where I'm also going to be able to have those amenities and live that type of lifestyle. And Orange County just offers that, Dr. Phil. So unfortunately, it is under, they're not being regulated for that. You know, a little bit, and, and Jennifer talked about it as well. What happens a lot in these sober living, too, is they do kind of strip their identity as well. And if they're not being transparent, you have to do your research. And you touched on that. We have done investigations, and I've heard it from people that I've talked to in that industry, is that they will then take an individual and predominantly in this case, females, and they'll take them out. Let's go out on a boat ride today just to get you away from this place and get you some fresh air. And this particular case, this person took this female out, out on this boat out in the marina, Marina Del Rey, here in California, and provides her drugs. And the next thing what happens, sexually assault and rape. And we hear that a lot in these in these bad um, sober living rooms. There are a lot, as, as Jennifer said, there are a lot of great facilities out there that are really changing people's lives and getting them back on the straight and narrow so they can be successful and stay away from their addiction. But you have these bad people that are really taking advantage of these people in these sober living homes and, again, providing them drugs and taking abuse uh, and abusing them sexually and by raping them. And so, unfortunately, we have seen that come across our table and it does break our heart because, one, they are fighting this addiction. They're at the lowest point in their life, as Jennifer said. And now you've taken them to a whole nother place. And I've heard recently of one story where this female tried to commit suicide because of the trauma she had been put through. One of the things that this points out is the human toll of these crimes is much greater than the dollar value. How do you put a person's life back together after they've gone to somebody for help and they got exploited? And, and that is why these things are crimes. It's not just about the dollars. We get really caught up in talking about, oh, it's this many millions or that many millions. And, and while that's a factor, it's a, me it's a metric. The real challenge in these cases is the human toll. How do you restore those people? How do you restore faith in an industry that has been exploited by these bad actors? You know, how do you hit that balance between being vigilant and being paranoid? And, and that's the danger. My guest today was a bright-eyed and beautiful 18-year-old girl with high hopes of escaping her small hometown in Colorado to pursue a modeling career in France. But what started out as a dream soon turned into an unimaginable nightmare. The day she arrived, she was kidnapped, drugged, beaten, and raped over a two-day period and then dumped on a roadside, left for dead. She said she was so terrified and traumatized she told no one about her ordeal for over a decade. So how did this broken young girl not only survive, but go on to thrive and become a best-selling author, speaker, and international life coach, helping hundreds of thousands of people the world over? Cheryl Hunter. Tell me what's your favorite thing to do in terms of impacting people? Do you like 
motivational speaking? Do you like life skills training? Are those the same things for you? How do you like to impact people the most? One of the things I've been doing recently is working with small groups. And I have started doing it on video so people can participate wherever they are in the world in a way that works for them. But there's something about working in groups that are small enough that people can get personal interaction, but large enough so that we can see ourselves in another. Because most of the things that that we each deal with are, we think it's a human, a personal thing, but it's human phenomena. So there's something about that particular format that I'm finding is really effective. You've had to overcome and have overcome some really difficult things in your life. A lot of people have. Yours are very dramatic. You've had to overcome those things and be tough to do it. And you did it on your own. You chose to kind of push this down, handle it on your own instead of talk about it. Do you consider that toughness? Do you consider it compartmentalizing? Do you consider it denial? What was the quality or the strategy that you used to handle that for 10 years without ever touching it? Initially, I think it was a, a little of all of them. There was some grit to it, certainly. I mean, you don't yeah. grow up on a, on a ranch if, without some grit. But I, I think, you know, in retrospect, it was also a little bit of denial, mm -hmm. a little bit of um, fantasy. Like if I just pretend it didn't happen, even to myself, and never admit it, then it's as, as though it didn't happen. What would your advice be if you were in one of your groups or whatever, and you encountered you at 18 years old, someone that maybe it was on a college campus here in the States, maybe it was after work or whatever, somebody had been violated the way you were violated, and they confided in you, this happened to me a year ago, I haven't told anybody I'm dealing with this internally on my own. Having gone down that road, what would be your advice to that person? Do not isolate. Speak to people. I think my road of healing took so long because I isolated and kept it to myself. Get into therapy, get into a group of survivors, something. Get into something that allows you to find community and realize that the responses you're having are natural and normal and you're not alone. And it's it's interesting that you say that because every time I speak, which really truly is one of my favorite things, do public speaking, every time I do that, people come up and confide in me that they not only have been sexually assaulted or violated in some way, but that they've never told a soul. Adults, there was a woman who was 77 who told me. She had lived her life never telling anybody. Could you imagine bearing that from being a teen? That's the reason I wanted to ask you, because it sounds to me that if you could talk to 18-year-old Cheryl, you would say different things than you said to yourself then. So different. Suffering grows in silence. Pain grows. It replicates. It increases in size. And when we can shine the light on it, the light of being transparent, it has no place to continue to fester. It really is the most profound healing. Although I had done so much work, the most profound healing came when I finally 
admitted it aloud Mm -hmm. and to others, but to myself. I believe monsters live in the dark. Yes. And when you turn the light on, it's like, oh, that doesn't have as much power over me as I thought it did. I want to use this as a teaching moment as well. I have done some life skills seminars over the years myself. We worked with the whole family. And these seminars would have a couple hundred people in them. And this family had three generations in the same group. The grandma, her kids, then their kids. And grandma, sweetest lady, is very wealthy family, ranchers in East Texas. And she had a secret. And we got to a part in the training where you really unburden yourself with things that if you have something that you feel guilty or ashamed about, and she was having the hardest time, and she said, I just can't, I just can't do it. I can't give it a voice. I'm sorry. I know that y'all are courageous and you've done it. I just, I'm, I can't do it. I can't do it. And they came to get me to come and talk. We were there. I was in small groups. And I came and talked to her. And I said, look, just you and me right here, look me in the eye and just tell me quietly. There's nothing you can say that I'm going to judge you. This has burdened you your whole life. She said, I, I, I felt guilty and ashamed every day of my life since it happened. And I said, you're in your 70s, and you've carried this burden all this time? What is it? And she said, when I was 12, I had a seizure. And I said, and? I'm, I'm waiting for her to say, like, and during that time, I went and robbed a bank and shot <laughs> nine people or whatever. But that was the end of the story. At 12, she had some type of seizure. And in her generation, that was interpreted in a lot of different ways, like demonic possession or something bad. It was not good. And she felt so much shame for that. She carried that for almost 60 years every day of her life because she isolated about it. And when she said it, everybody's like, what? Like, that's it? Right. She had no way of knowing that until she talked to people about it. And I said, look, that's a neurological storm that you can have once or repeatedly, and it has nothing to do with you. And I'm talking to her and she's getting taller as I'm talking to her and her grandkids and her kids are around her. And the next morning she looked 20 years younger. She was free from this burden. That was no burden at all, only in her mind because she isolated about it. Monsters live in the dark. And when you talk about it, you really claim dominion over it. You, You have a power over it that you don't have if you don't, if you don't talk about it, you're not alone. People think I'm the only one that feels this way, suffers this. No, you're not. Nobody has invented new suffering in the last <laughs> 2,000 years. Nobody's invented new suffering. We share it with somebody somewhere, somehow. When I was trying to overcome the initial shock of, of being abducted by these men, I relied on the stories I heard from other people, like the like the Holocaust survivors. 
And it was so therapeutic to me that I made it my mission now to tell inspiring stories of other people. And so I, I shot this docu-series called Rise of people who've done that, just have mm -hmm. risen from the ashes. It's one of the things that is most inspiring about watching you and my mom and grandma were both really big fans. It's the stories of hope that you bring. And I just, I know that they're here with me today. <laughs> Not talking like the person who thought I was crazy for thinking I'm talking to the dead, but I, I, you know, I really do feel them here. And it's, I, I want in some way to bring these stories of hope to the world as well. I think in these polarizing times, seeing somebody else's example of somebody who's been able to pull it together and overcome and, and feel like, oh, that's me. I'm, I'm just like them. I can do it. Even if our circumstances in life are dramatically different, I think we learn through example. We learn through modeling. We learn through story. Wendy Murphy is an attorney that specializes in the representation of crime victims, particularly women and children. For more than 15 years, Wendy has served as an adjunct professor of sexual violence law at New England Law, Boston. She also co-directs the Women's and Children's Advocacy Project under the Center for Law and social responsibility. She's done so much. I could go on forever and not even get to her. I think words are very powerful. And you've spent a lot of time talking about and critiquing the vague language, such as molestation, sexual assault, which does whitewash very serious acts, which can involve penetration, etc., You've criticized the court, prosecutors all, for not being more aggressive in describing the gravity of these crimes, correct? Yeah. I mean, what an important topic. And I'm so grateful you brought this up because uh, language, as you know, is uh, passively absorbed by all of us. When we read something or watch something, we just take it in very passively. We're not trained to be critical consumers of words and information. So we don't tend to think hard about the words that we use ourselves to describe things. And many years ago, I founded the first in the country at my law school, I founded the first in the country program to, in a systematic way, uh, critique the language used by courts and media in describing violence against women and children for, you know, very simple reason that if what is written or said uh, is either vague or erotic or um, just not clear about the nature of the harm the victim endures, then naturally our culture comes to understand that suffering as something inconsequential, not very serious, not worth worrying too much about. And in turn, you know, we, we don't get nearly as upset as we should as a culture about the problem, even though it's destroying lives, leading to high rates of domestic violence, homicides, suicides after sexual assault, and so on. One of my um, pet peeves that is used all the time in media and by the courts around this country is the phrase, the child performed oral sex. Uh, you read it all the time and 
generally speaking, uh, that is a description that is the antithesis of what actually happens when a child is raped in a way that happens to involve an oral penetration. Um, the child isn't performing anything. The child is the recipient of severely abusive sexual violence. The child is not engaged in any kind of sex. So that whole phrase is so wrong. The child should not be described as the performer. The, the actor in that sentence should be the rapist. And so the correct way to describe what happened is the rapist penetrated the child's mouth. I mean, as, as blunt as that is, and as, a, as uncomfortable as it might make us feel, that's the truth. And we need to know the truth, we need to hear the truth, and we need to be uncomfortable in order to understand the severity of what a child goes through when that happens. And it's a very common form of child sex abuse. But that's the point. They need to feel uncomfortable to appreciate what the child endured. You don't want the jury to feel comfortable. They need to feel uncomfortable if they don't, they aren't grasping what took place at the time. It needs to be offensive to their sensibilities. They need to be uncomfortable hearing it. They need to be embarrassed to hear it. They need to feel shame that it occurred. They need to be outraged that it happened, not whitewashed with the language so they can sit over there and feel comfortable in the box. They need to be pissed off and stand up because of what happened instead of some judge allowing them to describe it is sex. Sex is something you do consensually when you are at an age and a mental capacity to give consent. Yes. Absent those two things, the capacity and the age to have the capacity to give consent, absent those things, you're not having sex, you're being raped. Yeah, and, and our language has to reflect that. I mean, that's the whole point of, of focusing on that one phrase. It's used all the time by media and courts because it makes people feel better. And it even feels erotic, which is much worse than just benign, right? That a jury should be thinking, and this is what happens. I've tried many jury cases, and when you use language like that in front of a jury, they naturally relate it to their own internal narratives and their own understandings of what they've gone through in their lives. And when they hear the phrase oral sex, you know what they're thinking of. It's not violence, it's pleasure. And you, that's not how they should be feeling when they hear the language um, from a prosecutor about what is a, usually a potentially life felony, right? If it's a life felony, use language of violence. Molestation, which you mentioned earlier, is another one of those fudge words that makes me crazy because what does it even mean to some people? They hear the word molestation and they they might default to the thing that is the least distressing to them, uh, you know, that there's a, a hand grab of the rear end. Uh, but to other people, they might hear the word molestation and think rape. We shouldn't have it be up for debate what words mean when we're trying to convey the truth about something horrendous that happened. This is the problem with the language we use most of the time when describing all forms of violence against women and children. It is vague, it is eroticized, it is um, soft-pedaled, and it is, generally speaking, um, not clear what happened. And so it's hard to be angry. If you read a news story about a guy who got probation for molesting a child, 
you don't even know if you're supposed to be angry because what if it was just a hand grab on the rear end, right? How do you get angry as a culture about injustice with very minor sentences against these monsters that are that are really destroying children's lives? How do you get angry about a, a meager punishment if you don't know what happened? That's a big part of why we do the project we do. We use, and we use sociolinguistic research to critique the language rather than just saying, we don't think that's fair, we don't think it sounds right. We actually bring sociolinguistics to our critiques so that when we send letters to courts and to the media saying, this is inappropriate and here's why, we've got science to, base, uh, to back us up. There's literal science that proves the use of erotic language or vague language is actually harmful to society. And then we give them alternatives. We say, here's a better way to do it. And we hope you'll adopt this um, new approach in the future. And a lot of courts agree with us. A lot of newspapers that we write to will send us thank you notes, but not all. Some of them will just say, uh, we know what we're doing. You know, we've got our own editorial staff. Thanks very much. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And it's what makes them uncomfortable. And they say, look, we're not trying to be sensationalistic here. Well, you know what? You need to be sensationalistic because this is sensationalistically bad. And people ask me sometimes, you know, Dr. Phil, you often say that rape is one of the most underreported crimes in the country because I've said, you know, one in four women are the victim of sexual violence. And at that, it's underreported. Why? These are the reasons why. What we've been talking about is the fact that they are subjected to these pre-offense audits of their life and everything in the world is pulled out. Like you said, a woman had to out the fact that things had happened to her with her father before where she had been raped by him. Then I've seen cases where they then take that and pull out research that says when that happens to a child, they often become promiscuous. And then because of the promiscuity, they wanted this. They use it to spin it against them psychologically. They go into their dating histories and put them on trial. All of these things are underreported, and that's why a lot of them don't come forward and bring charges against the person. Yeah, I, and it's it's funny. Um, you know, rape is very underreported, always has been. Uh, and that's partly because we do make it painful to seek justice. Justice should not be painful. We should be celebrating people who are reporting crimes, whether it's a drunk driver, a bank robber, or violence behind closed doors. It's all violence against society. It's all crime against society. And it's not a private problem just because it happens behind closed doors. I think we forget that sometimes. So we need to reward people who come forward, treat them as heroic. Uh, because when people speak, when they talk about crimes that happen, no matter where they happen, it helps prevent crimes against others. That's one of the benefits of the criminal justice system. It deters other people from doing the same things. So if you keep pushing victims away of certain types of crimes, if you keep messaging them that it's going to be painful for them to participate in the legal system, you're basically telling others in society, don't bother. I love the fact that you focus on the language that's used because I am such a believer 
in the power of words, the power of language that we use. I mean, when I'm talking to somebody and they say, oh, I just had a horrible day. It was just horrible. And I think, really? Go to a children's burn unit. That's horrible. You being 15 minutes late for lunch and having to go back and get something you forgot, that's inconvenient. That's not horrible. But when you tell yourself you had a horrible day, when in fact it was inconvenient, when you say someone was molested and you don't tell the jury what really happened, tissues were torn, blood was had, a child was violently assaulted. Language is powerful. Use words to say what really happened. Don't catastrophize when it wasn't, and don't trivialize when it was. That's so powerful. And the fact that you're doing this sociolinguistic research and educating the court system about it, that may be one of the most powerful things that you ever do. That may be your most powerful legacy in all of this. I'm a strong believer in that. So God bless you for doing it. Thank you for saying that. It's a very important project to me, and um, my students really love it. That Every year they, they get excited about knowing that as lawyers, they don't have to just argue the law. Sometimes they can make change by uh, stepping into other disciplines and helping reform systems in ways that no law school professor is ever going to teach them. 